welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Blake Haxton again. Blake, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming again. And I want to talk about the what you've done since the last time until now. We talked the last time about, I think we talked about goose stuff and docks, but it was a little cold for that. We talked about the woods. <laughs> and I'm very curious how things have gone. I'm also curious. Some people, when they go to listen to this podcast, they go to the hosting page or Apple. Some people go to my joshuaspodics.com slash podcast. By any chance, did you go to that one and see that I edited the broadcast of your uh, race? No. I'm not like a big video editor, but there was two races that you were in plus your medal ceremony. And I just went and clipped them out. So now people can just watch like your 20 minutes instead of this whole three-hour thing with not all you. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. No, I didn't, but I will definitely check. I know you mentioned you would too. Yeah, because I watched it. It was, it was an exciting race. Thank you. Yeah. And it was a good, you know, like I said, the, the broadcast was good, but they just sent out the, you know, I think it was that like three some odd hour. It's it's the whole event. You know, yeah. it's the whole finals day of the event. So um, anyway, thank you for doing that. That's awesome. Yeah, check it I will, out. I'll check that out. But enough about me. Let's talk about you or that was about you. So let's see. Can you remind me what you, when I said, what does the environment mean to you? You came up with something and then you committed to something. Can you, can you remind us what, what you acted on and what you committed to do? Yeah, well, as I remember it, and I, I'm not positive that I'm going to get this exactly right, but I remember my memory of the conversation, the impact it had was, you know, I'm a pretty, pretty much indoor creature and I'm uh, definitely a creature of habit, but I also have my blinders on sometimes, but I also really enjoy being outside. My biggest uh, time spent is on the river, you know, either paddling or, or what have you. And then uh, on top of that, I do like to spend as much time. We have a great park system here in central Ohio, and I've gotten a lot out of going on the bike paths and, you know, wheelchair on a bike path is a great, uh, great marriage. So I've spent a lot more time outside this, this summer and during the pandemic than I have in the past. And I, I noticed how large of an impact that had on my mood and on my perspective and even things that I've read since about eyesight, where having your, uh, you know, my eyes aren't great, but actually literally just looking at something far away changes a little bit of the distortion of your lens and is actually pretty good for your eyes too, to get a break there. So um, anyway, I've been able to do all that and it got me thinking about, okay, how can I, how can I amplify this? And one of the big challenges that certainly I've, it, well, I didn't think of a challenge in itself, but it's been one is being outdoors and finding something enjoyable to do from a wheelchair is not the easiest, you know, not to crack. But since we talked a couple of things, one is, you know, and I'm certainly still competing and still an athlete want to try and, you know, amplify my health. And one thing, you know, you'd mentioned all the, the ways you changed your food prep and kind of what you're eating. And I'm like, you know, I, I really had to pull the trigger on this. I need to start experimenting with other things. So I've shifted my diet a little bit. Not a time. One, I, I was a fiend for soda that like, oof, you know, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. There you go. Yeah. And a lot of, some of it was convenient. Some of it was tasteful. You know, you name it. I was like, okay, I need, I need to find a switch. So, you know, this has kind of been coming for a while. I thought, okay, I, you know, this is, this can't be a good talk about sustainable. This is not a good lifelong habit. And I don't think I, I mean, I've had it at restaurants and things, but I don't think I've, you know, bought or ordered any sort of you know, bottled or canned product. I mean, cans, you know, aluminum cans are a little easier to recycle than, than bottles, certainly. But anyway, I've noticed that the volume of trash I produce in the last month mm-hmm. has gone down <laughs> tremendously and I haven't missed it. You know, I've got my, I've got my green tea that I, I brewed here this morning and I noticed a difference in just, you know, I think my level throughout the day, I'm a little smoother and it's good for me anyway. So that was one. And then two, and more directly, sorry, I'm taking a long time to answer your question here, but um, in thinking, okay, what can I do outside? What can I do in the winter? What can I, so I've been 
since high school, I uh, actually, my, my birthday gift for my parents when I was 18 was a shotgun. It was my grandpa's shotgun. Mm-hmm. And in central Ohio, there's a lot of places to go uh, trap and skeet shooting outside. And I really enjoy it. And it's actually pretty easy to do from a wheelchair. I've done it many times, but I've kind of gotten away from it just as I've had commitments to other things. And now that I'm moving away from rowing and spending more time outside, I, uh, I pulled out my shotgun and I cleaned it. And I'm like, man, I, this is something I really enjoy. And, and it's great. I mean, it, you know, it's, you probably interact with this and I'm not, I've never been hunting. I'm not, I'm not a hunter, but if you want to talk about people that have a, uh, a commitment to, you know, the environment and preserving it and enjoying it, uh, you know, outdoorsman is the best you can do. So, um, anyway, I have picked up shooting again, outdoors and all that entails. And that's given me a chance to be more outside and more, uh, you know, a little more engaged and active and, and all those things. So, Anyway, that's kind of a change I've made, as well as, as you mentioned, I did buy a pump for the dock, my, mm-hmm. my dock cleaning, you know, um, <laughs> help deal with all the geese, but um, that is yet to come, you know, November in Ohio, I think it was 34 degrees this morning. We will not be seeing too much of, uh, of the geese for a while, and I certainly won't be on a dock, but other than that, we're heading the right direction. So I have a couple of questions to ask. Now, what I, the responsible thing to ask is, when you did these three, you, so you mentioned three things. There was a change in your diet. There was the cleaning out the shotgun and preparing to, I'm not sure if it's hunting or skeet shooting or, but to prepare to use it. And there's getting the, uh, the pump to clean the dock. When you were doing these, was your sense of the outdoors, that, that was that passion, that motivation in your mind, in your heart when you're doing these things? Now, that's what I should ask, but I can't help but ask you've got geese that are causing a problem. You've got a shotgun and I can't help but see if these two <laughs> things are going to converge in some place. You know, they haven't yet. And that's incredibly illegal, especially where I, where I am. Don't get me wrong. I have no love loss for Canadian geese. They are mean. They are vengeful. They are. Are they delicious? <laughs> I, I don't know. And I don't care. No, I'm kidding. They are not majestic creatures. They are a nuisance. Mm-hmm. And I've been fighting a decades long battle with them. No, I mean, I, I, had, <laughs> I don't have any plans, but, uh, you know, if, if one should so happen to fly next to a clay pigeon, you know, no promises, <laughs> but no. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the, uh, your motivation and, and what was in your heart when you're doing these things was, was it these things that you talked about? You know, in a sense, I mean, well, to be honest, they kind of were after we talked about it, you know, because it was more top of mind, you know, if we hadn't talked about it, I would have enjoyed the things anyway, but I wouldn't have paid as much attention to it. Mm-hmm. That, that that kept coming to mind, just being more mindful of the impact. You know, one of the things, though, you talk about sustainability, you know, coming out of Tokyo, and I think, you know, I'm probably going to be done rowing, but maybe not canoeing, which probably sounds like a distinction without a difference. But uh, rowing is a much bigger time commitment. And it's and all these things. So I do have more time. And as I've kind of shifted out of that and that time commitment, I've looked at, you know, what are some habits and pastimes and hobbies, so to speak, that I can do you know, for the rest of my life and, you know, what it's, what's truly sustainable in that sense, personally. And it did get me thinking about, okay, how do I maximize my, my leisure time in all these ways? And now I'm thinking more about, okay, I'd, especially if I go away, eventually I'm going to be done canoeing too. And that'll kind of be my last outdoor activity that goes away. And that, and that wouldn't be good. And so anyway, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it, it would be the driving factor, but it's been, it's been a much bigger part of the analysis than it would have been otherwise. Yeah. One of the things that a goal of this podcast is for people to, I hope to switch people from viewing sustainability and 
putting the environment in, into their an effect on it in their hearts and their minds as I think there's a major view of it as being like a burden. It's, it's, you know, really, I want to get ahead in life. I want to put my kids through college and things like that, but I have to uh, pay attention to stuff. You know, poor me, poor us, that past generations could fly all over the world. They could do whatever they, you know, they didn't have to think about these things and we suffer for it. We have to suffer and not get to do what they did or feel guilty when they do it. And what I believe happens is that when people actually connect with their personal connection and, and act on their intrinsic motivation, it's not a burden. That's my, that's been my experience. And, and that's my, I, I believe that when I walk people through this exercise, that they will get an experience like that. Did, was that the case with you? Certainly to an extent. So yes, but maybe in a roundabout kind of way. So my, exactly on the point you mentioned, and I really appreciated the way you framed it as saying, okay, well, if people didn't view it as a burden, they'd already be doing it, right? Like that's one way to look at the, that's one way to, to look at the situation. And I thought about that when you mentioned it, it's like, well, yeah, I like the, the, the logic is sound, but the more I thought about it, it's like, well, no, no, I'm not sure I buy that because I actually think there are lots of things we all do that probably aren't, we probably don't want to do. They're probably not in our best interest. And, you know, the legendary rat race, right? Like we're all just, you know, moving from one distraction to another on the way to the grave. Uh, that's the most possibly cynical existential view I can give you. So that'll be the low point of, of that particular narrative. But you can see what I mean. It's like, well, it really made me question the assumptions of, okay, well, what, why am I doing the things? Because to your point, my, my view, I guess, of a lot of our environmental impact, it's almost always, I think, an externality of something else, right? I drive my car because I need to go to work or go to the grocery store. You know, I don't drive my car because I want to increase my carbon footprint. See what I'm saying? It's, a, it's a, in the economic sense, it's a pure externality. You know, I generate trash because I want to have use of convenient products or products that I deem convenient in you know, the most affordable way. It's not because I want to take out another trash can once a week, right? So anyway, it just got me thinking about, and, and you've mentioned this, and I think it's, I think it's absolutely right, that it's, just a connect, it's connecting our values to our actions. And I'm guilty, certainly, of not always thinking really clearly about why I'm doing, you know, am, I, am I connecting, like, is this really what I want to be doing? Or am I just going through the motions? You know, am I, and it, part of it, I, I think might be my age, being 30, I don't know, not, I'm not having a midlife crisis or anything, but you know, up until eight, probably up until 25, and you could disagree with this, but I was in school up until I was 25 and your whole life revolves around building your future, or at least that's what you're told. And there's a lot of efficacy to that. I'm not, not knocking that. I think that's today's day and age. That's a good thing, but you don't do a lot of like stopping and thinking and, you know, the whole time. I mean, everyone probably gets their, you know, teenage angst or whatever, but um, for the most part, you're sort of thinking inside the box and, and pushing forward. And, you know, again, who am I telling with a guy with, you know, a guy with two graduate degrees and, you know, thinking about the world. Right. But, but it was, it was my experience. So um, this was probably the first time. And then, and then I picked up rowing and that kind of took up all my, you know, mental bandwidth and I was, you know, starting investing and that, you know, it was a wonderful pastime, but it's, you know, it sort of takes up all your, your bandwidth, like I say. So anyway, kind of taking a step back and connecting, okay, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? And is that really what's going to take me to where I want to go? So anyway, that's my long, that, that all, our conversation kind of sparked that, that thought process for me. And in a lot of ways, the answers come back. Yes. Right. Like I, I very much enjoy my career. I don't have any regrets about that decision-making. I've, I've, I've loved competing and still do and in, in canoe and the, the single. So that's been an incredibly rewarding experience, but I do a lot of things 
by going through the motions too. And that has a broader impact than, than I would think. So anyway, it's gotten me, it's made me think more deeply about that. And, and then too, and this is a question I don't, I, you can wave me off here if you don't want to, uh, you know, if this isn't where, where you'd like to go, but it has gotten me thinking more broadly about our energy system. And, you know, it's made me realize I'm a very, I never thought about it this way. I would say, if anything, I'm an advocate for high energy, right? Energy means, and you know, says the, says the lawyer to the physicist, but energy means work, you know? And it's been fascinating to me that in a lot of ways, increased energy allows people to care about the environment more because they don't care about where, you know, how they're going to keep warm or, you know, keep the lights on or, or get their next, next meal. And as a physicist, you know, as a physicist and analyzing our, our energy system. And I sort of mean that in the, the, the broadest possible way. Mm-hmm. You know, is there anything you see that we could be doing and sort of like the low hanging fruit to reconfigure the way we source our energy? There are two big things that you talked about. There was the immediate question you just asked about energy and our system to create energy. And before that, there was your, I'm going to go with the first thing first. Okay, great. Yeah. I, I gave you too, I gave you a little too much there. <laughs> what I heard and tell me if I, you didn't say these words, but what I heard was this fit into a pattern of your life of taking more responsibility and making your choices more deliberately based on your values. I'm not sure if I projected onto you something that you didn't say. Did I hear that? Is that a fair assessment of what you said? No, you said in about one phrase, but it took me about five <laughs> minutes to get out. Yeah, no, that's, or at least, well, I don't want to take that much credit. That's what I've been consciously aspiring to. I don't think I get there all the time, but that's what I want to, that's, that's where I'd like to get. So before you and I met, that was something that was a pattern in your life and this fit in with that pattern. Sure. Okay. Then in that case, it's, um, it's funny how it fit in in a different way. If I, when I'd ask, what does nature mean to you? It's possible you could have said, that's a place where I consciously think things and, and I'd like to be more conscious in life. And that might've led to the same things. Although I'm not sure because not, it's not really, that's not necessarily something of a property of nature. But it feels like it fit in. Any, I mean, one of the big things that I, that is a, a pattern in my life, not just that I'm trying to do that, but when I act more sustainably, it's all about, you know, it's not abstract. It's not nature in the abstract. Because if I do something that pollutes the surface of Jupiter, if the, well, I don't know if Jupiter has a surface, but, you know, some planet off in some other galaxy, I don't care if it's <laughs> uninhabited, right. right? It's how it affects other people and to the extent, to some extent, wildlife as well. But I value people more than non people. And and one of the things, I'm not a parent, so I don't know what it's like to have a child wholly dependent on me, but people seem to really like it, that responsibility. And nature affords us something like that, maybe not as acute as one's own child. But on the other hand, it's billions of people, not all connected to me. I mean, I guess they're all, they all are, to some extent, they are all connected to me, but that's a place where I get to bring into my life Stewardship, responsibility, sustainability, very similar concepts that add to my life. When I was a child, I didn't want responsibility. I didn't want to do the dishes. I didn't want to, I didn't care. And I don't know why I had, I didn't know then why I had to like clean things after I played with toys, I had to put them away. Why? I'm going to play with them again. And now that's something, part of my maturation was enjoying responsibility, accountability. And stewardship is a major way that I can do that in a way that feels really good. Yeah. So something you mentioned right there, it's kind of hit me between the eyes and I've thought about it a lot this year. Um, Like I said, I'm not a parent either. And I'm sort of that phase where I don't really want to be, at least not 
soon or at the moment. Um, but I certainly have friends and peers that want to be. And I look at it and I say, wow, I can't, I can't figure this out. Look at the amount of responsibility. Look at the commitment that this takes. Like it's, it's amazing. And I've, I've never thought, oh, that's irrational. No, that's clearly a very rational human thing to do, but I don't, you know, I'm not drawn to it, at least not at this point. So there's got to be something intrinsic in people that, that seek out to exactly your point, that sense of responsibility and that sense of uh, commitment and you know, responsibility in some ways is just another way of saying a chosen sacrifice, right? Because you say, I'm going to prioritize this thing over my other, over other things which means I'm going to have to sacrifice something, you know, nobody gets, <laughs> life is not a sacrifice free endeavor. We, we just, you know, if we're lucky, we get to choose what we, what we give up. And I guess I'm coming around to a place where, you know, and I'll, I'm going to go off on a tangent here and then bring it back around is I've spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, well, I've, I've spent a large part of my life moving a very small boat down a river relatively slowly in the grand scheme of things. And not creating a lot in the process. You know, it's almost this purely selfish endeavor on the surface, but at a much deeper level, it doesn't feel that way. And that's kind of a puzzle to me because that doesn't necessarily square, but I think it does. If to your point, we say, okay, well, what am I taking responsibility for? Well, maybe I'm just going to take responsibility for my own body and my own effort. And I'm going to try and get the most out of it. And, I'm, and that's, that's the work I'm going to find meaningful. And I think there's, in some of what you just said, I think there's something deeply, that sense of meaning we all crave, that I do think seems to be one of the things that you know, sets, sets us apart from animals is we have a deeper sense of meaning, a metaphysical need for meaning in that purely philosophical sense. And it's really kind of a good thing. I think it's sort of the, the essential human being, right? And I go, I go back to uh, there's something that kind of jumps off the page. And we, we chatted briefly about this, but regard you know not to just purely taking it as a as an ancient text and not reading anything else into it you know when adam and eve are in the garden the the narrative goes that god said well there were really two commands that that came out of that one be fruitful and multiply which to your point like we you know most human beings do seem to wire that that's meaningful labor to them is caring for their children and their families and things like that and then the other is be stewards of the earth and, and of nature and not to the exclusion of people. Like you say, it's hey, manage nature hey, for, for its own, you know, like there's a, there's a natural, you know, not to use it, the, the word in the definition, but there's an ordinary course to nature and it, there's an ecology to it and it works best in a certain sense and, you know, respect that, but also manage it for the benefit of humankind. And anyway, your comment kind of wrapped all that up. It kind of connects those dots for me. And this turned, this went from me cleaning my shotgun to a very, uh, very abstract meta narrative very quickly, but it's kind of where our, our, our conversation tied in with a few other things that's, that have had enough time during quarantine to kind of think about and frankly, haven't been able to get out of my head. So that's where I ended up. <laughs> I'm curious where, the, where does that lead? So now you've been doing things that are a bit more stewarding, be it just soda or. So this, maybe this leads back into my next question is I've, I thought, okay, well, there are certain, certainly some energy sources that are not nearly as sustainable as others, right? And I, I don't know how you feel about this. I'm also a general believer. There are some good transition fuels. Like I think natural gas is a decent transition fuel in the sense of, okay, it's better than, you know, it's better than coal, but we can't, you know, do it forever, certainly. And sort of the way I shake out is I've come to a place where I'm a little frustrated that nuclear power doesn't get the, you know, it's sort of been taken off the table. And so I feel like this sort of marries you know, the idea of, okay, well, what impact am I having and how can we 
you know, solve these issues. But I thought, huh, you know, it'd really be great if I had like a physicist who also cares about the environment to ask about this. This would be a really fun conversation. So again, I don't mean to get off your, change the subject, but I'm, I'm just really interested in hearing your opinion of that. Well, you know, France just committed to building some new nuclear and I'm on um, Slashdot and Hacker News a lot and they, they're very pro-nuclear. And I certainly, actually, my first paper ever in sixth grade was on <laughs> nuclear power. I still remember, I, I stole the title from one of the books. It was called like Nuclear Power, Prologue or Epilogue? Oh, man. I didn't know what the word epilogue meant. I didn't really know what <laughs> prologue meant either, but it sounded really cool. So for a lot of time, it seemed to me pretty clear that if we have all this pollution coming out of, out of fossil fuels, and we have this other thing that doesn't produce, produces some pollution. Right. And there's an issue of where we put the radioactive waste. Sure. If we get to fusion, is potential, there's potentially little to no radioactive waste. There are reactor designs that they keep improving that make it more efficient so that there's less radioactive waste that comes out. Could we get, let's say we got to a point where we could undo the radioactivity or have so little of it. I mean, there's also radioactivity coming from burning fossil fuels that produces a lot of, I mean, it, the stuff in the, it, it doesn't create, but it disperses the radioactivity. Sure. So could we get to a place where if we take all the pollution that comes from each, could be a lot less with nuclear. Now, in principle, nuclear, if we're using uranium, if we're using, there's also, there's a limited supply of this stuff as well. Much, uh, the limit is farther off, but it's still limited. That's an issue. But it seemed to me for a long time that on the most important stuff to, to us today and for the foreseeable future of civilization, nuclear has some major advantages. Oh, there's, there's, um, there are issues of terrorism. There are issues sure. of weapons. There are issues of these things are really expensive to build and they can take a long, long time to build. So these are engineering issues that end up being public policy issues as well. There's certainly been some very high profile uh, Three Mile Island. I grew up in Philadelphia and that happened on as a kid. And there's Chernobyl and you know, we all, Fukushima and so forth. What's the rate? And would that presumably that rate would drop with more experience? These are all engineering questions and science questions to some extent, but I don't think that these are the main issues. And it took me a long time to reach this. That and actually, this is one of the first times I've, I've written a bunch of this in my in my um, the manuscript to my next book. Oh, awesome! Here's my approach to it: is that well, there's a couple of ways. What I think would be nice to have happen is that if we had a, a power source that produced an energy source that had less um, pollution, then we'd switch over to it and we'd live in a world with less pollution. But the pattern in human history doesn't seem to be that when we have a greater energy source that we live the way that we did just with less pollution. What we tend to do is to find new ways to use that energy. And it's always going to be some improvement, but we'll use more energy. We'll, here's what I don't think would happen, is that we'd live as we do today with less pollution. I think what would happen is that we would say, all right, we got to improve the cars a bit. We got to improve this. We got to improve that. We'll improve all these things. We'll use a bit more energy than we used to, and we'll grow the economy. Right now, we have projections of, and, and, as well, and also the population. We have projections that are based on a certain amount of pollution, a certain amount of, uh, a certain world that we live in. And having pollution-free or very low pollution fission or fusion or both would dramatically change how the world looked. So one way that I see it playing out is through vertical farms. I'm sure you know, you know about, we have farms that grow yeah, sure. plants. And right now, they don't work for staple crops like potatoes and wheat. It's mainly for lettuce and herbs. So why is that? Because it takes a fair amount of energy. I mean, we have to 
I mean, there's great efficiencies by not putting plants in dirt, by putting them in these uh, hydroponic solutions. It's much less input in terms of, of fuel and raw resources. Now, it also needs light. So we get LEDs that are tuned to the perfect frequency for each plant so that we're wasting very little energy. Well, still, we got to get energy in those lights. Where does that come from? Well, if it comes from coal, we haven't really gained a whole lot. In, or if it comes from fossil fuels in general, then now we're burning fossil fuels to grow these plants that used to grow from just sunlight. It used to be purely, I mean, that was like the original solar power, the solar photosynthesis. I mean, there are huge gains in that if the vertical farm is in the middle of a city, then you don't have to transport it from a farm into the city. So you gain not transporting it. If you gather sunlight of a broad spectrum and only output at a narrow frequency, you get a big gain there. If you want to build a society based on vertical farms, you need much more power to get things like wheat and things, that, not just specialty plants. Well, then you need a lot more power. If you get it from solar power, then you have solar power outside that you can't, you can't vertically farm, vertically stack solar panels because they'll, sh- they'll cause shadows on each other. So you have to have a big space for the solar power. But okay, but then now what have you gained? You have to get the solar the, from the plant. From, that's not going to be where the city is. That's going to be somewhere outside the city because the people are in the city. I mean, you have some rooftop stuff, but it's not going to be nearly enough. In principle, maybe you could put it over areas that we couldn't grow plants, but still you're going to lose in the transmission into the city. So it, it, it doesn't seem like vertical farms are a solution to our food unless we get nuclear or fusion, fission or fusion. And then suddenly you can put the, assume it's really safe. You can put it near the vertical farm. So what happens if we can now vertically farm our crops? And by the way, I'm, I'm just looking in farming because food is one of the more important things for, for humans, but you could look at lots of different areas. Sure. But it seems to me that if you can, as it is now, we're already converting a lot of farmland into housing developments and, and developing it into, well, not so much housing developments, so much as malls and gas stations and you know, urban sprawl, ex-urban McMansions and things like that. And farmers are selling their land because it's worth more, not as farmland, but as, as um, whatever people use it for, develop, develop uses. Well, if nuclear makes vertical farms and vertical farms can do everything and it's much more efficient, then there's zero reason to farm. Farming is now worthless. It will all turn into housing developments and so forth. So right now we have city cores where there's a higher value because cities are usually where there's a river going into the sea. There's resources there. Well, if you have nuclear, then you can get the resources anywhere. It seems to me that the trend that we see now of suburbs and exurbs will continue, will will increase with nuclear. Well, what sets the limit now is the distance from some natural resource. But if we can create, if we can desalinate water, we can get fresh water anywhere. If we can use nuclear to build, make food, we can get food anywhere. It seems to me that the limit on growing, I'm in New York, so exurbs go to the West. It seems to me the limit on the city expanding to the West would probably be Chicago expanding to the East or San Francisco expanding to the East. Because why not build everywhere? There's nothing stopping us. Do you have a view to this point? Like as an investor, something I've only spent time recently being sort of fascinated by is the demographic curves. And there's some, well, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, if you hit somewhere, and I forget what the number is, but it's like, you know, GDP per capita of thirty-five, dollars $40,000 a year US, let's call it today's dollars, that the population drops below replacement rate, right? Like, I think the projections right now are that China is going to have somewhere around half as many people in 2100 as they do today. And there are other reasons for that, but it's happening, you know, the, all of Western Europe, right? It's an inverted family tree type thing, you know, four grandparents, two parents, one kid. What's your view of that? Like, to, how do, is that a concern you have? Or is that 
does that impact that view of, okay, hey, if because I feel like I read you loud and clear, hey, if we've got a new energy source, we're probably just going to find ways to use more energy as opposed to just displace the old. Does that, what's your, yeah, what's your, what's your perspective on that, on that piece? Well, let me transition into, and from what I just said, eventually we'll keep, we'll keep growing the population as we have more and more resources. We'll definitely keep growing the economy as we have more and more resources. And I think that the people's decisions on how many kids to have, I mean, most of human history, for 300,000 years since humans began up until a couple hundred years ago, we were at replacement level. We basically grew more as we, as we expanded out of Africa into the rest of the world, but then the amount of people per land, per resources available stayed constant. And only, I mean, it's very anomalous in human history, our population growth. I believe that it resulted from agriculture and then from the Industrial Revolution, which is to say it came from greater energy sources. So if we, have, if we have some new energy source, I think that history shows it will increase. If we do keep increasing, we will eventually hit limits on amount of, now there'll be land available. Well, we can grow into the sea, I guess. We could, but eventually we run out of something. Actually, if you really want to go pure physics, we eventually hit thermodynamic limits of this energy creation would be the heat can't get off the planet and we'd heat up the surface of the planet. And that's what happens if you take a bit of the sun and put it in the earth, then we don't need the sun to heat us up. We'll be heating ourselves up and we can't just get rid of that energy so easily. That's thermodynamics. But we'll hit limits before that. If we expect, and, and the trend seems to be in all of life, as far as I, I see, that if, if we grow too fast, then we can collapse. So we eventually would have to stop growing. Now you could say, maybe we'll get off the planet. Okay, so take it to a planetary a solar system and then a, a galactic scale. People have done this math, in particular, uh, one of my podcast guests, uh, Tom Murphy, who's got this wonderful blog called Do the Math, where he does the math and he figures out what happens if we keep growing for a long time. And eventually we, we heat up the planet we, uh, ourselves, not from greenhouse effect. And it, it's only a couple thousand years before, that is to say, less than the time from the pyramids until now. Looking forward, if we keep growing at 2 3% per year, 2.5% per year, before we, we use up all the resources in the galaxy. Like that seems unbelievable. It, if you know finance, you know exponentials and, and humans just can't get exponentials even when we think we can. And they just go really fast. So if we're not going to grow by a certain percent every year, then we have to level off. If we expect to level off ever, it's much easier now. The, the larger the population, the harder it is to coordinate a bunch of people somehow leveling off. So there are many populations that have leveled off in history. There have been many that have overshot and collapsed. We have plenty of, of ruins that we've discovered. And there are plenty of places the, one, the big one that comes to mind for me all, all the time is Hawaii, that when there was some period of several centuries, maybe a thousand years, that the Hawaiians were on their own. Talk about rowing across an ocean. Yeah, right. How the Polynesians got there is that, so they got there and they lived for something like 500 to 1,000 years without contact with the outside world. So their earth was the Hawaiian Islands. And Captain Cook arrived there at 18-something, and there were something like 300,000 people that had been living in, in harmony, in balance with their, their world for a long time. We, humans have been able to do it. Something like 300,000 people seems below the threshold of where we can coordinate these things. 7 billion, 7.9 billion looks like it's above to me, but maybe it's below. Maybe we, can, maybe we can stay level. But there's a lot of people who say, we got to keep growing. So if we're ever going to level off, the sooner we level off, the better. At some point, if we're not going to keep growing, and I don't see an earth with 7.9 billion people as advantageous compared to an earth with two or 3 billion people, which seems to be a sustainable number. In my lifetime, it's more than doubled. And I don't see 
the, the number of the greater number of people has improved the quality of life as a whole for everyone. And I, there's, there's less ability to get away from it all. There's less solitude available to us. And it doesn't seem to me that this, I'm not saying there's less total number of people overall, because if we collapse our society and suddenly the population drops to well below replacement level, which happens when populations collapse, it's a smaller number of people. Japan, South Korea. But if we're looking at the earth over, well, I'm, I'm talking about collapse of more like Syria. Oh, that, oh, that, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there people are escaping, people are escaping there, but it's more like a collapse, like the Mayans or Easter Island, or I mean, to me, an example of not humans, but like on my windowsill, when the, the spider mites got to my cherry tomato plant and outdoors, other bugs and birds would eat them, but indoors it's, they're on their own. They, they got no predators and they killed on the, the plant or they didn't kill it. They just about, I mean, it wasn't producing any cherry tomatoes. And they couldn't coordinate. They couldn't, they couldn't say, hey, we got a good thing going here. Let's not, you know, let's hold back a bit from consuming and reproducing. They couldn't. They just consumed and reproduced. And then all the leaves fell off, except for like a couple. And then they, they all died. And there's many examples of that in human history. That's good. Have you, have you ever heard, come across the theory that, so there's good evidence to think that the, that the British figured out child mortality before everyone else? Not figured it out, but drastically improved, you know. To your point, up until about 1800, 17, 1700, 1750, like the child mortality was basically the same around the world. Like your odds were not drastically different anywhere. And then the British figured out, and well, Western Europe, but the British figured out in better numbers, you know, minimal, like they went from having doctors operate and not wash their hands and then deliver mm-hmm. babies to like mm-hmm. just having midwives. Anyway, because the, the infant mortality rate dropped and they were stuck on an island that that's what one of the things that birthed the British empire was they figured out population growth before everybody else. And so they beat the rest of the world to the punch. <laughs> it could be, I mean, there's other facts of all that energy from the, it's going to be a lot of things, but I think it, but I think it just to, to reinforce your point of these, I want to talk about second and third order effects of population and energy use. Well, going back to what you said before that people put a lot of faith in the demographic transition, which says that, a developing co- country or a society has a certain infant mortality and a certain death rate. Then as they improve their education system, the rights of women and so forth, then the death rate drops. So now people get older. Then soon afterward, the birth rate drops and to match the death rate, not intentionally, but that's the way it works out. And then the population drops again, or the population rate drops off again, and the, and the population, total population stabilizes. There's a couple of things that I don't think people realize that that that, that period in which the birth rate, the death rate is high but has increased but the death the birth rate has not decreased right the there's a big roughly doubling of the population in that time right I think they call it that the demographic dividend in economic terms right that's it's part of that idea like if you're basically if you're a country in the middle of that trend then you can grow your economy at ridiculous rates as opposed to history. But then that kind of slows down and unravels. If there's a, I'm not familiar with that term. I, I've probably come across it at some point. But yeah, if, it, if you grow your consumption and birth rates or uh, population at the same time, I mean, it looks to me, all the numbers I see say that the earth is unable to feed its population except through fossil fuels, but the fossil fuels are poisoning the, the air and, and causing the air, land, and water and causing the greenhouse effect. So if we keep sustaining the earth at above a sustainable level, then we poison ourselves and flood ourselves. And if we don't, then, well, 
one possibility is to, ah, before I learned about Machaviravadya in Thailand, I thought the only way to lower population is, well, you could be through war. You could, I mean, it could be through natural causes of disease or the one-child policy or eugenics. And that's a cure far worse than a disease. And that's not interesting to me at all. And then I learned that- Oh, sorry. Have you read Robert Malthus? Well, I, don't, I haven't read the original, but I mean- No, you know the yeah. positive yeah. checks. Yeah, yeah. And then I learned about- The first one I learned about was Machai Viravadi, who's now been a past, best uh, guest on the podcast. Oh, cool. He was an economist in, in Thailand and looked and saw that in rural, in rural Thailand, they were growing and at six or seven children per couple. And when he plugged in the numbers, he had learned in, uh, he's half Thai, half uh, Scottish, I think, but he, he went to the school in, in, I think, Australia. And he learned rising tide lifts all boats, most economic problems of, of inequality and, and lack of resources. Growth solves these things. And tends to equal things out over, over time. But he kept putting the numbers in. It didn't work out. And then he said, what if we didn't grow? What if we shrank? And the numbers worked out better. More health, more equality, more stability. So he took it on himself to start, not to wait for demographic transition, but he he's started teaching, teaching isn't the right word, but causing a cultural shift in views toward managing the number of family size. Things like going to school and teaching little kids to play with condoms like balloons so that condoms become a normal thing, making them available, like all cops would have them. Taxi drivers would, would have advice and literature you could get on birth control. And it swept the nation. And they went in, I think, 10 years to something like two children per couple, hmm. which is to say replacement level. No demographic transition necessary. No, everything was purely voluntary. Everything, I mean, they had superhero characters and he's got a restaurant called Cabbages and Condoms where it's like all these condoms that they give out. And it just changed the culture toward having fewer kids. And at the time, the Philippines and Thailand had the same population. And now the Philippines are way overcrowded and Thailand is not. Huh. Thailand is still grown. The same thing happened in Costa Rica, in Iran, and other places. Not the same thing, but similar things, okay. which is to say a culture deliberately chose to voluntarily, non-coercively work on family size and bring it down to not growth. and the results was the opposite of what I understood of the one-child policy. It was people choosing one or two children and preferring it and no suffering. Now, there are other places like China and India, which forced sterilization and forced abortions on people and also did some voluntary things. And apparently the forced stuff undermined the effect of the voluntary stuff. So one way to get people to have fewer kids is through a demographic transition. But that, if we double the population of all the places that haven't gone through it yet and increase their consumption at the same time, and we're already overcrowded, not overcrowded, over, and we don't have enough resources outside of fossil fuels to power it, that recipe doesn't work. That's why a blog called Do the Math is so valuable because it matters the numbers. And had we started that process when the population of the planet was 1 billion, that would make a lot of sense because we double the, pl- double the population to two. And then we, and if we leveled off there, it would be, it would work. But if we do that now, it doesn't, it, it's as far as I can tell, and I'm, I could be wrong, but as far as I can tell what limits a, a major bottleneck to population, how many people can the earth can sustain is how much food we can grow. And the green revolution enabled far more food production per acre of land, but with fossil fuels as an input for the 
fertilizers and pesticides, that if we took those away, uh, you might know that as a measure of, of calories, one calorie food takes 10 calories of fossil fuels to make these days. And it used to be negative, I mean, zero fossil fuels. It was, we're, we're net, I mean, as far as calories go, we're, we're burning fossil fuels ourselves as processed through plants. Sure. Yeah, I'd heard, I'd heard that the, yeah, the math is, is calorie for calorie that it used to be much less efficient in the sense that it was more calories to produce one maybe than some of the machinery, but we got so good at incorporating, you know, as opposed to biological calories through, you know, horses and cattle and us that by incorporating calories from hydrocarbons, that that ratio didn't improve that much, but we could scale it so much better that that was, that was the, the output growth. That's what really drove it. And so I like people, more people sounds nice, but the planet is finite and exponentials grow really fast. People will say, well, it's leveling off. But if we level off above what's sustainable, it's not actually leveling. I mean, if it drops again, it would level off first and then drop. So how can we tell the difference? I think if we calculate what the earth can sustain and it's below the population, that's trouble. And if we double, say, the population of Africa and all the countries that are if developing is the right word to describe it, if we double all of them, that doesn't work. That accelerates the inevitable. Well, I mean, if, if that's just business as usual, then we're, it doesn't lead to a particularly, that's wars over resources and famine and disease. By contrast, which is a much more painful way to shrink the population. Yeah, it'll work. I mean, the population will go below what the earth can sustain. Yeah, right. It will. That's, there's no question <laughs> exactly. about that. Exactly. It'll, it'll get there. And one thing I've been playing with recently is, is you shall have, I think it says you'll, you shall have dominion over all the animals. And it strikes me that, so let's adopt this view that God created the earth and created all these animals and plants and so forth. If God created a certain number of them and said, you have dominion over all of them, and then we cause some to go extinct, we can no longer have dominion over them. We've diminished something that we didn't create and we may go away. That seems to be, now you cannot, each extinction makes it unable to fulfill that instruction. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that- That takes away what God has given. I think that, I was gonna say, I think that analysis would fit in in any any of the creedal statements, certainly of the Christian church that I'm aware of, and many of the non-Christian churches, that statement would be right at home I think not that it's always consciously thought of that way. It's, you shall have dominion over half. The others cause them to go extinct. Right. Not care for them. Not I read a great book once that was about all the animals that are listed in the book of Job. And this is a bit of a tangent, but it was fascinating. And there's like nine animals that, you know, in Job's conversation with God, God and Job is questioning the existence of the universe and his own suffering and everything. And God uses, I think, nine different animals as an example of basically telling Job to like shut up and pay attention. It's like, you know, I understand these things better than you do. You know, one, one line, you know, where were you when I taught the eagle how to fly? You know, tell me if you know. <laughs> and anyway, uh, just re- absolutely reinforcing that, you know, your, your observation there. And I think, again, we, whether we, whether we had take metaphysical meaning of that from not is a different question, but I, I think that system's absolutely right. I heard a definition of uh, sin once that, and that's a sort of a notoriously tricky thing to define narrowly, even from a, I think an orthodox biblical view, but uh, the short version is it's a violation of purpose. And I think that's accurate. And it, I think it rings when I think of it like that, to your point, like, well, okay, I gave you dominion over all the animals. Well, you know, not half, you know, not like, oh, use this half to do what you want, but, you know, take care. No, 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 no. Like you, 
you have a purpose. You're, this actually ties back into our earlier discussion around meaningful work or meaningful labor or however we want to define it. And I think that's a big part of it. You know, why do, why do people like having pets? <laughs> you know, like there are tons of work. Uh, it doesn't make any sense at one level, but at another level, if, if, if we are wired in some way to be able to care for other creatures that, you know, maybe function at a lower order than we do and to enjoy that, then it makes all the sense in the world. And, you know, it, it bugs me that I'm sad that I don't get to see a dodo. Like, I think that would be a fun thing to see. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Oh my God, man. If you read the book, also by a podcast guest, uh, The Once in Future World, J.B. McKinnon researches what North America was like before humans arrived. Not Westerners, humans. Oh, man. We think of Africa as having the big animals. They're small compared to what, and, and they were everywhere. I mean, whales all the time, as far as I could see. And what we have is nothing. I mean, it's like one-tenth, roughly, of what was there before. Oh, right. When I, I understand it was basically the large mammals that really suffered the most in terms of, you know, the, generally the apex top the food chain. And they just, you know. We don't have them anymore. Yeah. I mean, beavers were like the size of Volkswagens. I remember that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bears were like, like the cave bear was like twice as tall as a polar bear. And yeah, anyway, not to. Do you have a browser open? Uh, I will in a moment. So if you go to. Give me 30 seconds. My, I made it my identity on LinkedIn and Twitter, my, my picture, and it might change. So if people are listening, it's probably still there. I'm not sure. But if you go to uh, twitter.com slash Spodek. And you see the picture behind my face. It's this graph that shows, based on the ecological footprint, how many Earths would be necessary for an, if the whole planet consumed the way, and there's four bars. Me, five years ago, 2016 and before, the US average, the global average, and me today. So me before 2016 and before, I didn't have a car and I was vegan. So I was somewhat below average, but I flew a fair amount. So I was back up. And uh, so I was, close, I was a little bit below the US average. The world average was something like a fifth of, of, of the... And by the way, I think it was something like five Earths we would need for, um, for if everyone lived like in America, the average American. Of course, there are some Americans who aren't consuming that much, and then there are some who are consuming off the charts. Then for the world, the world is something like a fifth of that or something. No, I think it's like two, more than one Earth. I think 1.7 Earths is necessary for if everyone, the world average. I've got the graph up. It's 1.7 world average and Josh 2021 is 0.37. Yeah. So I'm down way below. And I put to you, I'll give, find me any American and I will stake my health and, and happiness. And it's right up there. You know, I got some pretty bad days. Sometimes I get depressed, but I don't feel like I'm living a life of sacrifice or deprivation. Now, when you see the, the ratio between the American use and the world, it's something like a factor four factor, something like that. But we're not 
many of those places are have higher marks of health, longevity, prosperity, abundance, equality, stability. But most of us think that the more we consume, we, we conflate consumption with quality of life. Man, that's a, you could they had a carve that in stone somewhere. When you look at the ratio between American and, and world, there's America is in no position to lead the world on the environment. No position at all. I mean, I think most, most of the rest of the world probably looks at us not for leadership, but probably with fear. They certainly don't look at us and say, I wish they had their health care. We had their healthcare system. Mm. Maybe some of the maybe some of the inventors of of uh, MRI machines because there's a big market. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, that that was not a. Oh, I totally disagree with your point. Kind of, hmm. it was like a like yeah. To, to your point, like there. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of Europe. Okay, so no, no. I mean, no, no. You, there, there are really the problem is there. Are, there are some things we do extraordinarily well. I mean, there's no accident that a lot of the COVID vaccines were driven by U.S. tech. On the other hand, like our infant mortality is not very. It's not very good. Well. That was exa- yeah. I don't mean to. So I picked the wrong measure. Like, yeah, was, Let me not pick. No, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, okay. Here's here's one. Like, do you think? You talk about health. I mean, and we we mentioned this. I think in a, our previous conversation, it looks like it looks an awfully lot like depression is a luxury good in an economic sense. And if you look at just the body mass index of North America and especially the United States relative to a lot of emerging countries, and said, "Is this you know?" How's this look? Would you, you know, how it affects public health? I think a lot of them would say no, thanks. Yeah, and so I, I think you get my general point if I didn't state it so well. Yeah, absolutely. And but most Americans would think, but it's better. But I point to my transition in a couple of years with no loss of. You know, everyone's going to say, "Oh, you're different." Okay, yeah, I'm unique, but I was I was in the thick of things. And I didn't have some things to lower that others do because I couldn't cut my meat out if I'm vegan and I can't stop driving if I'm, if I'm already not driving. So I had to cut other things. But back to where you began is living more deliberately, making conscious choices by my values. And I'm living more by my values, even if less, you know, saving time and money. And I show one example that one can drop by 90%. And imagine America dropped to that, maybe not my level yet, but say just double my level, still below one planet necessary, then America could would be in a position to lead. As long as America is saying, oh, if we don't, China will and Russia will. And if, they, if they're not on board, then, then if we need Russia and China to act first, that's saying they, we want them to lead and we want to follow. That's not leadership. That's the opposite of leadership. Yeah, right. Or you know, the cynical view is fine. Well, you know, is we can equate going first with leadership, but if they're going first, do we want to follow? And I think the answer has been a resounding no, at least for the last hundred years. But uh, you know, your point's well made. If we dropped to below the world average, we could lead the world. As it is now, I think we cause the world to fear us and not in a like Machiavellian effective way. Yeah, not as a commanding respect yeah. type of, you know, to, to sort of steal man, the concept of fear. But so- it seems to me that a combination of what's worked in many nations of consciously and deliberately working on population in a, in a voluntary, non-coercive way that people choose to do, that's worked in nations. I don't see why it couldn't work in regions and, and globally. And consciously choosing deliberately to live, as you've described, on a, it's possible. That's the route out, as I see it. But nuclear eventually we have to balance at some point anyway. And so if we don't stop the growth now, if we think we can stop the growth later, stop the growth now. I would think after we transition and we can stop, 
we can level off and live at, in harmony, in balance, below what the Earth can sustain. Then if we switch to nuclear and we have, and those values are in place that we live by, then uh, great. Although at that, at my consumption levels, very happy, very healthy, spending lots of time with family, then we don't need nuclear. And it's not necessarily a benefit. And it's got, it does have its risks. I can certainly envision a world in which we're living purely solar in the sense of eating plants. And I'm not saying returning to the Stone Age because we weren't living in the Stone Age before fossil fuels were put in use. And a lot of the thing, we have this view that if we don't live the way we do now, either we go into some sort of authoritarian, Stalinist, authoritarian regime, which no, I don't want, or we turn to the Stone Age. But that precludes regenerative farms. And it's, you know, we can live, we can take the best parts and leave out the worst parts. Uh, let me not say best and worst. We can leave out the part, we can, we can keep the parts that keep child mortality low, that keep disease low, and not take the parts that pollute. Now, how do we make that transition happen? That's what I'm working on. That's, you know, that's not trivial, but that's why we need leaders. Well, hey, I know, I don't mean to run you too long. I know you got a hard stop in, in, a, in a few minutes, but thank you for taking the time to walk me through that. It is so, I mean, my last thought, I thought here, and one, one of the reasons I was excited to come on the podcast and talk with you anyway was, and you could say this about any topic these days, but it is so hard to actually have a long form conversation with someone who has a background in a contentious isn't the right word, but, but well, maybe it is the right word, you know, a, controversial a hot topic. Yeah, there we go. That's better. And just say, Hey, like what, like, give me your stream of consciousness and I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to try and play gotcha in a tweet. You know, I mean, I think that's, you know, talk about leadership and, you know, fighting a good fight. I mean, we need, we need more of that, not less. I need more of that, you know, especially a conversation like this, where there's so much nuance involved, you know, I mean, whether, like you said, there's so much to think about and it's powerful to kind of get a, get a range, a wide ranging view on the subject. When I talk to futurists or to um, people with different religious beliefs, then they, they start off with different starting points. Right. And there's still plenty of contention to be had. And I may <laughs> be wrong on some of these numbers. I may be wrong on some of the projections. Maybe humans could level off. Earth. Maybe we could go to the galaxy and that would be just great. I can't see it. I could, maybe I'm missing something. You know, maybe, but I think, you know, having the humility to say, well, I may be wrong. It doesn't, it shouldn't make you dismissible. Shouldn't make any of us dismissible, right? Say, well, he could be wrong. So nothing he has to say, we should take into consideration. It's like, that's just a, that's a really silly way to think. And I appreciate it. I think a little, I sincerely think the majority of people want a humble, nuanced view of the issues that we're all facing. And, and, and an openness and a willing to, willingness to listen. And I certainly think you've created a space for that, which is pretty, pretty cool. Now, who knows if we... If, I'm not that humble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more than before. I was going to say, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can't... Maybe we won't get past 140 characters in you know, a 24-hour news cycle, and who knows? That could be... I mean, not... I, this is going to sound like a joke. It isn't. I'm much more worried about the reality-distorting potential of technology for the future of the earth and humanity than I am about carbon emissions. I don't know if that 
That's a price, which is not to say I'm not concerned about carbon emissions, as we've talked about. I am. But like you say, the ability we all have, we if we've created a medium between us where we can't we can't think critically and we can't we've we have literally create make it impossible to cooperate. Well, it's gonna be all she wrote pretty soon. Yeah, that yeah, if we can't cooperate, then nothing matters. Yeah, it's, it's- <laughs> you know, one one way or another, yeah, this whole population conversation might be a moot point pretty quickly. So anyway, that's a certainly not to end on a low note, but that's that's another thing I've been thinking about. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back to a high note. Is that I do want to get off the planet. Let's do it. Let's do it. Because uh, there could be, there, there will be an asteroid at some point, and the sun will become a red giant someday, and sure. the species will die if we don't. Sure. And I do like the idea of lasting longer than the, than Earth. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, that's like a sixty million year time scale for. I mean, roughly speaking, I mean, there might be an asteroid a couple of days away that we somehow missed, but probably it's a very long time scale issue relative to we got years, maybe months to let's say years to reverse course on our fossil fuel emissions. So to try to get off the planet with the last vestiges of, of our current culture, you know, an act of desperation like that seems totally out of whack with trying to, with something that we don't have to probably don't have to worry about for millions of years. I think the fastest, most effective way to get off the planet is to have live in balance and then consciously decide to use a certain amount of our resources to develop not like as a last desperate escape, but as a concerted effort that I think would be much more successful. I, it, it, to, for someone to say, I want to be on Mars, I want to die on Mars, isn't partly saying Earth, is, Earth doesn't look so great. Yeah, you're, wave, like you're yeah. waving the white flag in a way. And that's not good. Well, and even, and I really appreciate the effort you're putting into this, is for the most part, apocalyptic narratives don't seem to work terribly well. They are effective in some ways, or at least, well, they can create action in a lot of ways. But, and not not just with, I don't just mean that in the environmental sense, right? Like it's, you see it in party politics, you see it in, you name it, right? Um, The doomsday scenario doesn't, it kind of shrinks the world and there's a lot of weight for a lot of people to bear. But if you can create, the really successful things is where you can create a image of the future that someone wants to live in and then say, okay, that's a hopeful vision. That's not a, a darkened, smaller vision. How can, we, how can we act in order to bring that about? I mean, that's something you can do to really generate. I mean, if you want people to, you know, if you want to motivate people to get out of bed, I mean, you know, I, I think the carrot's better than the stick in this kind of thing. And I, I hope we can we can shift in that direction. Let's leave that as a cliffhanger for next time. All right. A hopeful open question. There it is. If I've characterized it right. I think that's great. Anything to wrap up with on this conversation? No, this has been great. I always, I always leave with a lot more to think about than I showed up with, which I think is the hallmark of a good discussion. Takes two to tango. So I'll accept my part and if you will yours. <laughs> hey, hey, I, 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 hesitantly, I think, uh, I don't know if it was 50-50 here, uh, but I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, Blake Haxton, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, 
There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.